everything old is new again. America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Felt a great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, Mark, like a dog for me. Meet me. Where's the goodies? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. I bet you wouldn't have done anything like this if Mom and Dad were here. You filthy criminal. Excuse me while I whip this out. Go ahead. Make my day. Where I'm uh, leaving the house and leave. I don't want to spoil it. You've probably seen it before, but I don't spoil it. But <clears throat> I sort of saying, I don't need anything. I don't need you. All that stuff came, came from my act. But largely the screenplay was developed by Michael Elias and Carl Gottlieb and myself. And we just kept working on it and working on it. Our goal was to have a laugh on every page. I hope you enjoy it. And here it is, The Jerk. There we are. I'm not necessarily the jerk, but I'm the one that's just been introduced by Steve Martin here on Everything Old is New Again, sans our friend David Cohen this week. But we have a special guest star and uh, quite a number of stars here, if you will, that are joining us today. And uh, I'm telling you, it's going to be a very fun afternoon uh, with Michael Elias. We're also with Michael Weiner, Dr. Richard Richter, Dr. John Viviani, all who have been uh, visitors to Everything Old is New Again in the past. We're just kind of celebrating 50 years of friendship and brotherhood together. And uh, we've uh, invited Michael Elias uh, for certain reasons we'll discuss um, to join us and have some fun. Uh, Michael Elias, if you don't know, studied with Lee Strausberg, the act actor's studio, was in theater in New York City. And then in the 60s, joined Frank Shaw and formed Elias and Shaw, a comedy team that did appear on The Tonight Show probably about five times or so. Uh, also played clubs in New York City and uh, were in, uh, just had some fun at, during that time. Then they became and were ap approached by uh, Hollywood, uh, uh, I would say, uh, entrepreneurs, if you will, and uh, they became writers. And, uh, and, <clears throat> and Steve Martin wrote with... Michael Elias are in the same uh, rooms, if you will, and they uh, formed a friendship, if you will. And uh, and eventually, uh, Steve Martin, uh, we'll talk about this, led uh, the way uh, with comedy shows in huge venue. And Michael Elias uh, helped uh, to bolster and to write some of that material. So also participated in The Jerk in 1979. And then head of the class, which I know many of you listeners uh, remember, starring, How starring Howard Hesman, uh, was written and created uh, by our guest, Michael Elias. Michael, that's enough for now. Uh, welcome to Everything Old is New Again. Okay, yeah, enough, enough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we could go on and on, but... Uh, all right. I don't want to do that. I do want to just ask That's very you. sweet of you. Very sweet. Very sweet. Thank you. Um, you started your career in New York City. Now, this is interesting. Uh, as uh, I guess you could say studying acting with Uta Hagen and, and Lee Strausberg, who's kind of known for the method acting uh, theory, if you will. And um, and later on became, uh, you know, a performer in, with respect to to comedy, uh, before you got to comedy, you were on stage, I think, in New York City here and there. Um, what um, what was the career path? What was the goal when you started? And and what did Uta Hagen uh, give to you in terms of any gifts to lend you uh, a, a starting point to where you were going to go from that point on? I, I came to New York right after college to become an actor. I was lucky enough to get into the Living Theater, and 
become a member of that company. They did the connection and I was in the brig. At the same time, I was still always studying acting, always trying to get into a movie or a TV series. So I was So as an actor, I was kind of in the world of off-off Broadway, the La Mama, uh, Judson Poets Theater, the Living Theater. It was a very exciting time teaching during the day because uh, you couldn't earn a living being an I mean, what I was doing, uh, my weekly salary at the Living Theater was $15 a week. So I had a job as a teacher. And then I started studying improvisational comedy with uh, Janet Coleman and David Dozer. And in those improvisation classes, I met a guy, I met Frank Shaw. And we would do improvisations together and we were the funniest guys in the room. And he said to me, hey, why don't we do this professionally? We could be comedians. We could be a comedy team. And that was the, the era uh, or era. There was the time of comedy teams, Stiller and Mira, uh, Nichols and May. So we became one and we started working and, uh, well, we started, we, we created an act improvisationally and then we found places, try to find places to uh, perform. And we ended up doing uh, nightclubs and and then we got a kind of good reputation and we were hired to open, uh, be the opening act for other sometimes rock and roll groups. We were the opening act for the Turtles. We were the opening act for at one point Janice Ian and at one point, uh, uh, Ed Ames. I don't know if uh, it's familiar to you. He was, uh, and he threw the tomahawk on the Carson show and hit the guy in the groin. Uh, anyway, that's what we did. So we were the opening act. And then, and we did some movies. We did uh, The Night They Raided Minsky's, Elliot Gould, there was a Billy Friedkin picture. And we did The Carson Show. Uh, and one night we were on The Carson Show, a producer in Hollywood, Ernie Chambers, uh, saw us and he was he was a big producer he had he done the Smothers Brothers or uh, anyway he he called us and said who writes your material and we said we do he said well would you like to come to Hollywood and be writers we said yeah and I said what about the act he said not interested <laughs> so so we anyway but we we went to Hollywood and started writing and and of course eventually gave up the act we did a few shows when we came to la we did uh, a week at the troubadour we did nightclubs but basically the act was over which was good i mean it was it was fine with me we had had it and then we started doing uh little variety shows and bigger variety shows and one of them one of them was called uh, the pat paulson Remember him? Half a, half a comedy hour, it was called. Bob Einstein was the head writer. And there was another young writer on the show named Steve Martin. A few things happened at the same time. I was starting to break up with Shaw. I became really good friends with Steve Martin. And he was a, he was a writer who wanted to become a comedian. And I was a comedian who wanted to become a writer. And we had this, we got this friendship and started writing I started writing material for him, for his act, which was sort of just beginning then. And uh, we would write together. Uh, and then Shaw and I went on, I think we did one more show, uh, Glenn Campbell, and we wrote a movie, um, The Frisco Kid. And that's, that's as far as I'm going to go at the moment. 
but that's my I, gee, I, I, I talked for a long time, but that was my um, history in Hollywood, kind of. And I appreciate that. That gets us started and introduced right into Steve Martin. Now, my brother is here, and uh, he's not on camera, but he, he's here, and uh, I think he remembers, and, and I certainly went with David Cohen as well, uh, who's not here, but uh, co-host of the show, in 1978 to the Nassau Coliseum. Ah. Little did we know, uh, this was, for me, my first concert. And I remember buying a T-shirt, and it had the face <laughs> of Steve Martin on it with uh, with the the arrow going through his head. Uh-huh. And I did not have any idea what to expect in a comedy show to begin with, no less something that turned out, from what I understand, to be uh, a cornerstone in some ways of comedy and stand-up comedy, in that he sold out approximately whatever it was, 18,000 people to watch his stand-up routine. Uh, and you had to have some pride uh, to see that. But I don't know if you had the the thought that that would be the goal, so to speak, when you were involved with that. But tell us a little bit about your participation in that event. And um, I may cut you off because we only have a, another minute. We'll continue on the other side. But give a little introduction as to what participation you had in that. And do you agree that that was a, a cornerstone of stand-up comedy? Yeah, it was the first rock and roll audio comedian in the sense that he had – he was a comedian performed before, as you said, eight, nine, 18,000 people. I was there that night. Uh, uh, I traveled. I think uh, Stevie Goodman was the opening act. Uh, was famous for uh, training New Orleans. Uh, I would go and work with Steve. I'd, he had a place in Aspen, and we, we, I'd go there for the weekend, and we would write material um, for his act. Uh, and then... I would go on tour with him. Uh, there wasn't much to do, but if something funny occurred, or if I saw something that we could, you know, develop further together in the act, we would we would do it, rehearse it, and he would he would put it in. But those those huge venues came from him doing scores of small venues where he built he built an audience on college campuses uh, uh little little com- comedy clubs uh and so that by the time he you know uh arrived as including the Saturday night live shows he could then book huge arenas um and we'll stop there just for a moment. We'll pick up right after this. Right. We get uh, back talking more Steve Martin comedy and more with Michael Elias. Right here on Everything Old's New Again. <laughs> be in my class this fall so tell me a little about yourself i want to teach the world to sing my primary interest is lunch to end racism to end world hunger to end illiteracy <laughs> i'm not into sports well reading that's not really a sport taxidermy i really don't have a lot of time for this to be accepted as an indian dude uh, by these american honkies howard hessman is head of the class premiering this fall hey guys let's do lunch uh, we're back here on Everything Old is New again, joining Michael Elias. Your channel. And the uh, the 
We'll try that again. We're, we're here on Everything Old is New again, joining uh, Michael Elias, the creator of Head of the Class, wrote, I believe, 14 or 15 of those episodes, which we'll talk about in a moment. But before we do, we had cut off uh, Mr. Elias talking about uh, Steve Martin and his time as a stand-up comedian uh, and and selling out 18,000 uh, seats, arenas, uh, back in the late 70s. Um, and you were traveling with him too, I guess. So was he, I know he was building this audience as as you described, but was he, and of course was on Saturday Night Live at the time, but was he in any way um, taken aback by the size and enthusiasm of these audiences? Or was it something that at this point in time, he was just on the top of his game and this was this was gonna last for as long as it lasted and then move on to the next thing? Yeah, I think the latter uh, part is is right. He 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 built it. He enjoyed it. He conquered it as you as and and at the same and it took its toll. I mean, the traveling, um, touring is it's hard. Uh, I mean, it's yeah, it's a, it's you know you live in a bus, and if you're lucky, you stop at a hotel, um, and. No matter how big the size of the audience, no matter how enthusiastic, you still have to go out there and uh, make them laugh. And uh, he always did. Uh, one of the things that Steve did was really smart was he uh, had a little short that Carl Gottlieb directed uh, called The Absent-Minded Waiter. I think it was 10 minutes. It was Terry Garr, and he played this kind of screwed-up waiter, uh, dropping stuff and everything. And the thing was... Uh, he would show that film first. As I say, it was like 10 minutes. And it was funny. So he was a comedian who came, and then he came out. As the film was ending, he would come out uh, live. And it was great because he had solved the problem of every comedian, which is how do you come out and make them laugh, get, them, get your audience laughing? Well, he came out, they already were laughing, and the rest was much easier. And they were already laughing at him, so to speak, as well, right? Yeah, so, yeah. He, he had won them over, but he didn't have to come out and start from zero. He came out where they were already won over by this uh, kind of almost guaranteed uh, funny movie. What a great idea. What a great idea. Uh, and a great show. I remember that to this day. Now, let's turn a little bit to, to head of the class. And uh, you worked with Howard Hespin from WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, yeah. He was a breakout star on that show. It was Johnny Fever. And, and now you're creating a show. Do you have the opportunity or did you, when you created the show, to ca cast it or have a say in the casting? Or was oh, that yeah. Was Absolutely. So uh, why would you select, why'd you select him? Let's let's get a little bit into that because I think he, he did a great well, job. We needed an actor who had a, or we needed somebody who could play a guy who was kind of counterculture, uh, who was, uh, it's, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't a hippie, but he was, or, uh, he was a guy who was, uh, an off-Broadway actor and director who was a substitute teacher. He, uh, and came into this class, uh, of really smart kids and had to win them over. So you needed a guy who was kind of uh, could be serious, but who was also kind of cool and kind of hip. And there it was. Uh, it was perfect. No question and, about it. And, and, no, no question about it. So he was a natural. There was no. I, I don't think. Uh, I don't know who came up with him. I hope it was me, but it probably wasn't. I don't. It doesn't matter. But he, as soon as the name, everybody said like, "Yeah, obviously, that's it." 
So let, let's talk a little bit about then going one step beyond and now writing comedy for a sitcom or writing comedy in general. I know uh, I'm going to play a little bit of a clip here very quick and uh, see if this will lend you into a smidge of a discussion about your mentors or some of your mentors in that regard. Let's just listen to this real quick. No, make a move. This is a stick up. What? You heard me. Mister, mister, put down that gun. Shut up. Now, come on. Your money or your life. <laughs> Look, bud I said your money or your life I'm thinking it over There you go, Jack Benny, the old joke Money or your life, right? Uh, yeah. Written by uh, Belzer and Perrin and, and, uh, and, I, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a smidge About mentorship and how important or not It is and was in your profession Or just in general well, I worked with Sam and George uh, uh, on that sh first show, Balzer and Perrin. They were hysterical, and they were they were really. I mean, they were they were giants in the sense because they came. You know, they were, wrote for Benny, and they wrote wrote that uh, your money or your life. But I would say that mentors, are people. I would define mentors as people you actually work with or, or for. I'm not sure. I got a lot of mentorship from Balzer and Perrin. I, sh I certainly got a lot of fun and I enjoyed being with them. Um, and they were really interested guys. Balzer was a, like a rock rib Republican, came to work every day in a suit and tie. And uh, Perrin was an inveterate gambler. And we had, I remember when we had to go to Las Vegas to see an act, they said like, they made him empty his pocket so he didn't have any money. Otherwise, he would gamble. Anyway, I'll skip. Hmm. And they were fun to be around. But my real mentor, mentor in the sense of working uh, and learning how to write comedy uh, and learning how to write sitcoms was Ed Weinberger, who uh, produced and wrote The Cosby Show for years and then Taxi and uh, a lot of shows. And... He was a guy who really, we we got a job, we worked for him on the first Bill Cosby sitcom. And I would say he was really important in my uh, education as a mentor. Uh, Ernie Chambers was also who uh, produced that show that uh, Sam and George were on. Um, you learn to write from other writers. Uh, and then, but my heroes, my comedy heroes would were, were I would say number one was Lenny Bruce, and uh, that was that was my um, the guy I just found the funniest and the most interesting of all. And then, of course, I like Nichols and May, but uh, that's. Uh, How about back in the day? Did you ever see uh, Gene Shepard down in the village, or or um, you know? Uh, on well, the I, I would listen to him on the radio. I think it was on uh, on the radio more. Yeah, so he, he would um, tell a story. I'm wondering if yeah. that had... Yeah, we all take all of the different experiences we have and compile them. And then uh, you tell me when you're writing a comedy, um, you take a germ of the truth and then what? Do you expand upon it to the nth degree and to, to make it funny? Yeah, uh, that's a good definition. I mean, I, 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 try, to, I, I try to keep comedy. Uh, I like comedy. It's based on reality uh, and character. Um, I'm not like it's interesting about Cosby. You couldn't write jokes for him because he never, he never where you could where it had something had a punchline, whereas you could for Dick Van Dyke, you could for uh, uh, 
you know, sitcoms or, or comedians, you or all in the family. You could write a joke, or that is to say something that had a punchline, but you couldn't do it for Cosby because he never stuck to exactly the line. So you had to make a situation for Cosby and allow him to exploit it. So, and then he did it brilliantly, improvisationally, uh, and that was the deal. But if you wanted to, you could not write a line for Cosby where it had to end with, and then I hit him with a Buick. Uh-uh. <laughs> he would make it his own. Right, the timing was never there, I guess. It wouldn't work for him. Uh, no, no, he, 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 he never stuck. I mean, he, he, he read the lines, but he never, he, he just wouldn't, he wouldn't do it, that, which was okay. I wonder if that's similar. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you had to have a situation. You had to have Cosby in trouble and then, you know, give him a roadmap to get out of it. I mean... Uh, Sounds similar to uh, like Jackie Gleason. They always say he didn't rehearse, didn't want to rehearse that that uh, honeymooners at all. And uh, and it seems like he didn't always, he ad-libbed, he didn't always come up with the punchline, although he did do punchlines for sure. Yeah. But it was more, like you say, the situational thing and how is this mind going to get out of it and the, the eyes and the, the body work and so forth, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, uh, I want to turn for a moment. Uh, last time you were on the show, you had written a novel called You Can Go Home Now, which was a psychological thriller of featuring a female cop on the hunt for a killer. And um, I'll tell you, it was it was a great uh, a great read. I had had enjoyed it. And I'm wondering um, if you have any plans. Uh, this is so much. You're so so much variety in your life. Uh, uh, the next thing is, are you going to produce or think about doing anything either with that book or uh, any other books? Well, this book is uh, right now it's, it's been optioned by uh, uh, and is in development to be a series. I'm not involved. People who know how to do dramatic series much better than I do are, 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 are working on it and uh, stay tuned. That's all I can say. But yeah, it's, it's, it's in development for, uh, for a series and I, writing another one, uh, actually two, I finished one, which is called Bender Sees the Elephant. And it's about my, I, I, I guess it's my fictional autobiography of my years in Hollywood, or it's a writer in Hollywood in the 70s and 80s, which was an interesting time. Rise of CIA, CAA, Ovid's Vietnam War, politics. So... It, it follows the, the kind of the adventures of a of a writer in Hollywood in those times. And I'm going to keep an eye out for that, and yep. we're going to come back and follow up with okay. the next project. Is that right after this, and everything old is new again with Michael Elias. <laughs> Back to America's Entertainment Pop Culture Talk Show. Everything old is new again with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. You're listening to Everything Old is New Again. My name is Nicholas Meyer. I am the writer-director of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and several Sherlock Holmes novels, including the forthcoming The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. Uh, welcome back to Everything Old is New Again, where... Uh... 
here with friends and friends and friends. Uh, we've got friends for 50 years. Dr. Richter, Rick, Richard Richter is with us here. Michael Weiner, my brother, Dr. John Viviani. We're with Michael Elias. And, of course, that is a friend of the show, Nicholas Meyer uh, from Star Trek. Uh, he was involved in quite a number of the movies and, of course, The Wrath of Khan. And seems to be that we... I hesitate to say friend. He's a friend of the show, but he seems to be a real friend of yours, Michael. Is that correct? Uh, Absolutely. You, um, Absolutely. We, uh, he's my oldest friend. I think he's my oldest friend in Hollywood. Um, met him when I first came here. He was just uh, about to publish this novel, and we've stayed friends ever since. How about that? That's amazing. We, we were working on it, and I think hopefully we'll keep our fingers crossed sometime in the future. We'll have the both of you on. I'd love to talk to and pick the brain of two authors and two uh, gentlemen who have, have done so much in Hollywood and look back and, and try to learn some lessons from you. But uh, that'll be for another day. You would, I just want to finish up. I think you would just, and I cut you off, you just describing a little bit about the, the next couple of projects. So if you want to just finish up either on the first. Oh, and then, and then now I'm working on a, uh, another thriller um, uh, murder mystery set in, Set in Maui. Yeah, you're going to have to visit Maui to do some research. That's yeah, going to be yeah, tough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just for, for kicks, if, if they do this TV series, and, and it's, uh, it sounds like they are, and it's going to be produced for uh, You Can Go Home Now, if they asked you to write an episode or two, do you think you would dive back in? I don't know. You know, it's uh, maybe. But I, I'm happy to, as I said, leave it to, this may sound strange, the, the professionals, because the art of writing a episodic dramatic show it's pretty special i mean these and and the people they have are great so i'm happy i'm a kind of a consultant and i'm they're really they're really nice and and i'm happy to help them or give advice or whatever it is or the fruits of my research but i, well, I don't know if i would write one sounds yeah, like i really don't know it's premature Let's get them on the air first. It's true. We'll keep our yeah. eyes open and, uh, yeah. and see if you could be a consultant. Everything all is new again in some way, shape, or form. In that, Dr. Richter has a question about uh, uh, which one? Yeah, Michael. Actually, the Frisco kid that you you wrote, I mean, that put here, I see you smiling. It put a big smile on my face, you know, back in the, the day when it was out. And I just wanted to know, you know, how you went from – where you even came up with the idea for that and you know how that went from you know your your imagination and writing the screenplay into the big screen and then did you have any interaction at all with two of my favorite actors from back then which were Harrison Ford and Gene Wilder I just loved his movies he was amazing and um yeah I just okay well here's the thing growing up I didn't see Jews in movies I certainly didn't see him in cowboy movies. And I love cowboy movies and I love playing cowboys. So I said, how come you? So when I came to Hollywood, Shaw and I, we were always, we used to talk about that. And we said, well, let's do some research. And it turned out there were, there were Jews who were very influential and important in the, in the Old West. There were Jewish gunfighters, there were Jewish sharpshooters, there, were Jew, there was even a Jewish Indian chief, uh, oh. Solomon Bebo, who became the, the chief of the Acoma uh, Pueblo in Taos, New Mexico. So there were Jewish gold miners, and, and but I never saw him on in my in movies. So he said, "Let's write a movie about let's write a movie about a Jewish cowboy or a Jew comes to the Old West." We said, "Okay, who's the 
Who's the top Jew? He says, well, we got, he's, he should be a rabbi. Okay, and we'll make a, a cowboy movie with a rabbi, kind of a cowboy movie. And, uh, and so we had him traveling across the country with a bank robber who was Harrison Ford and it was Gene, you know, Gene Wilder. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of history to the movie and how it got made, but that was the, that was the impetus for it to say, hey, how come we never see uh, Jews in cowboy movies? And Absolutely. they should have been. So it's the same thing where people say, how come, you know, the, we don't see, and we do now, but we don't, we never saw, I mean, black kids never saw black guy, uh, guys in co black cowboys, but there were. Uh, however, at the time, you know, there was the, the bronze buckaroo with Herb Jeffries. You know about those? No. Oh, yeah, there's a whole series of black cowboy movies starring uh, Herb Jeffries, uh, who was a singer. He was sort of like uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, but he was famous, and he played the bronze buckaroo, who was, and there was a series of, I don't know, half a dozen westerns. Everybody in it was black. The, black, the, the hero walked into a saloon. It was all black guys uh, playing cards, black singers, black bartender, whatever. There were black bad guys, black good guys, and like Roy Rogers and Gene uh, Autry, in the middle of the movie, they, they sang songs. And this guy, uh, Herb Jeffries, was, uh, that's, that's a sidebar, but it's a really interesting thing. So that's, that was the impetus for the Frisco Kid. Uh, it was, uh, it had a long and tortured history before it finally became a movie, went through many actors, uh, not many, a few actors, uh, directors. Mike Nichols was the original director. Uh, Jack Nicholson was the original uh, cowboy, uh, cowboy bank robber, and Dustin Hoffman, the original uh, rabbi, but it all fell apart. Uh, and then we, had, I would say, ended up, I don't mean pejoratively, we ended up with uh, Harrison and uh, Gene Wilder. And I'll tell you just one little anecdote. Originally, the cowboy was supposed to be played by John Wayne. <laughs> he wanted yeah. to do it. He said, I want to be in that Jew movie. And the thing was, John Wayne had a price. It was $750,000. It's low by today's standards, but maybe then it was a lot of money. But his price was $750,000. That was it. And some schmuck at uh, Warner Brothers Business Affairs offered him six hundred, and he said, "Forget it. Never talk to me again." And he and he he, he left. But we could have had John Wayne. I mean, I'm happy with Harrison; he was great. But that John Wayne wanted to do that movie. Which Think he, about that. And so John Wayne was so uh, principled, I guess you'd say. He didn't even want to come back and say, "No, no, you know, don't insult so, so me again." No, insulting. You know, John Wayne, of course, he was the cowboy back in the day. But I've got to tell you, looking back at that movie, Harrison yeah. Ford was just, he was perfect for it. Oh, yeah, because he was funny. I mean, John Wayne was never really funny. I yeah. mean, this guy could, he could, you know, Harrison could do comedy, he could do exasperation. He could, he was, he was terrific. It was, I love Harrison. Great. It would have been a great change of pace, too, yeah, to so. see. see uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talk, talking about comedy, because uh, we, you know, we, we didn't really mention it. You kind of mentioned you have written for Pat Paulson, Phil Cosby, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, All in the Family, The New Dick Van Dyke Show, Glenn Campbell. I'm going to play a smidge of one clip of The Odd Couple. We love The Odd Couple. We've got to talk about it, uh, the episode <laughs> wow. that you wrote. So let's just play a smidge of a clip and dive into this in a minute. The operas in which the leading lady is named Leonora. Il trovatore Baverdi. Il trovatore Baverdi. 
La Forza del Destino, also by Verdi. Something else by Verdi. Name three operas in which the leading lady is named Leonora. Il Trovatore by Verdi. Il Trovatore by Verdi. La Forza del Destino, also by Verdi. Something else by Verdi. La Forza del Destino. La Forza del Destino. Means the power of fate. In German, it's die Macht das Schicksal. In German, it's die Macht das Schicksal. You don't want it in German. Okay. Come on, only a few seconds. Anyway. Fidelio by Beethoven. Fidelio by Beethoven. You're kidding. Oh, boy, thanks. That's terrific. Felix, I just want a car. <laughs> <laughs> now, Michael, that's the episode, of course, where they have a car and, and John Biner's in it and there's all kinds of trouble parking the car and so forth, what they're going to do. Um, just wanted to dive in a little bit first. Uh, and I, I presume the answer to this is yes, but I'll have to dive in. Were you happy with the way that the two of them performed your words? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how could right. you improve? Like, they, weren't they? Yeah. They were right. terrific, weren't they? Yeah. That's based on a true story where uh, George Shapiro recently passed away. He was a manager and agent, and uh, he parked his car. And, I mean, that was a story. He went to the, get his car after work, and the car was, was gone. And he uh, called the police and reported it. He rented a car. And then two days later, he realized he had parked it somewhere else. And uh, <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> so, yeah. So he was he was ashamed, embarrassed. So what he did was he parked the car in front of the Beverly Hills Police Station and left it there, and then waited. Like about a week later, uh, they call. He said, "Mr. Mr. Shiro, we found your car." He said, "Oh, that's great." <laughs> Give them some credit and get out of it gracefully, right? <laughs> that's, that's, how the, that's how he sold that to. Uh, 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 Tony Randall and or I guess Gary Marshall, I think, was doing the show then. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what it said on yeah. the, the paperwork. It was just, it's an amazing uh, body of work and with Michael Elias here and Everything Old is New Again, we'll be back. Uh, one more section to dive in some more. We just continue the fun here. Everything Old is New Again. Suddenly, Seymour is here to provide you sweet understanding This is Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. The ashtray and the paddle gator, that's all I need. And this remote control. The ashtray and the paddle game and the remote control, that's all I need. And these matches. Yes, train, and these matches, and the remote control, and the paddle ball. This lamp. We're back on Everything Old is New again, listening to the Jerk Day a little bit. We're with uh, Michael Elias, who was involved in uh, the screenplay play <laughs> with uh, uh, Steve Martin, and we're here, of course, with Michael Weiner, who hadn't said anything yet. Michael, say something to us. Hello. Hello. Oh, this other Michael. Hey, Michael. Hey. <laughs> I'm, I'm unmuted. So, Michael, I was um, curious. I saw that you have a very uh, you know, uh, intense uh, background in college. You were a philosophy major, mathema mathematics. Did that background influence your successful career, or was it sort of just uh, separate? No, it was very influential. Uh, I went to this little college called St. John's College, 
where I, yeah, I majored in, ended up with major in philosophy and mathematics. So the mathematics got me my job as a math teacher in New York. That was great. Um, and philosophy and reading and basically having a liberal arts education uh, gave, me, gave me what I really needed to be a writer. Uh, that was the most important thing. Uh, I mean, I say, what's the education of a writer is to read as much as possible and discuss and think about what other writers have written. And uh, I certainly got it in college. How about that? Uh, Dr. Richter, a question about yeah, The Jerk. Uh, you know, Michael, I, we love the movie The Jerk. And yeah. my family, my kids to this day, you know, it's one of those movies that you can rewatch. And the, the term, you know, the joke in the house is always the new phone book is here or I found my special purpose. Our special purpose. I've yeah. got to ask you, at least the origin in your screenwriting of the new phone book is here and I found my special purpose. Where did you come up with that? I don't I don't know who came up with it. Uh, it was one of three people uh, or four, me, Carl, Steve. Yeah, one of us. Um, but you, you raise an interesting, I mean, you mentioned something interesting, which is, really makes me feel good, which is people tell me, you know, I watched that movie with my mother and I realized she had a sense of humor. Uh, and that that's sweet about that. You can watch, you watch it with your kids and you, you laugh at the same thing, even though it's a little off color, whatever it is. It's a, it's, it, it's, it's great. I was, I really like to hear that. So thank you. You're welcome. It's well worth it. Uh, let's play one more clip here from head of the class. And I have a springboard uh, off of this. We'll talk. Suddenly see. Yeah, exactly like that. Hey, Arvid, you're not bad. No, really. And Mr. Moore, you should seriously consider making Arvid my understudy. There we go. That's a little piece of uh, an episode. There was a two-part episode. Little Shop of Horrors was sort of uh, uh, played through that two-episode um, uh, arc, if you will, back ahead of the class. And also, um, back. it's interesting to me to... To, to know that you did also dive into a little bit of Greece and and some other uh, plays. And I guess a larger question is with that show, you touched upon many different topics. You did some morality plays. And even in that, uh, where the character that is overlooked becomes the star, so to speak, of, of a uh, school play. Um, did you intend or do you have anything in the back of your mind when you write some of these uh, screenplays or, or episodes that you'd like to present ideas that would last, not just a joke, but maybe some thought that could last uh, and maybe change someone's mind about things? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I believe uh, that one of the things about entertainment and it could also educate and uh, have people struggle and deal with them. And you can't solve the world's problems, but you can you can show kids having uh, ambition, problems, and uh, and I think we try to do that on head of the class. The funniest one, we, not the funniest one, one we did was uh, was called the Shakespeare authorship question, which is who wrote Shakespeare. And there's a whole body of uh, scholarship that says that Shakespeare wasn't written by Shakespeare. And we did a show about that where the teacher, Howard Asman, says uh, he believes that the Earl of Oxford wrote it. And the kids are like, how could that be? And, and they discuss that in a comedy way of who wrote Shakespeare. And we got more mail from that show 
than any other show we did. We got, because the Oxfordians, uh, finally, they all got to say, finally, somebody on television said that, you know, we're right. <laughs> and uh, so that was good. And yeah, we, 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 we did a show about a teacher who was uh, developing Alzheimer's. We did show about, one show about a kid who brought a gun to school. We brought we did shows on, a show on birth control. I don't know if you saw that one where Harvard is trying to buy a condom and he's in a drugstore and he's really you know uh, frightened to buy a condom and uh, a woman comes up to him and says they're on me and they better be on you and. Uh, <laughs> And by the way, ABC refused. They they said, well, you, you have to cut that line. We said, why? They said, you have to cut it. You can't cut it. We said, uh, uh, no, no. And we had fights with the censors. Another good one was uh, we had a picture of Malcolm X in the, in the classroom. And it was next to the head, uh, the picture of uh, Daily News, which was uh, Ford. Remember that one? Ford to city drop dead. Um, Anyway, so we got a call from the censor uh, at uh, ABC. He says, you have to take, take down the picture of Malcolm X. We said, why? He said, well, it's too political. You can't. He said, uh, and I said to the guy, okay, uh, just write me a letter. Tell me to do it. Of course, I never got the letter, and Malcolm stayed up for the whole five years. How about that? Uh, it's a, it's a good, way to, good way to handle it. Uh, quote here, and I'm going to see if we can dive into this for a moment in front of yours, but before I do... Um, you, you did that episode uh, about Little Shop of Horrors, and then uh, a couple of years before, your friend Steve Martin was in Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, there's a, you come back to bookend, so to speak, there with a little bit of that. Uh, did when you wrote the script, were you familiar with that, and did it influence you in any oh, way? Yeah, sure. I mean, Little Shop. We decided we would do. I don't know if we did all five, but I think we said, well, let's do a musical every year. I mean, we did Little Shop of Horrors. We did uh, Greece. And I guess we did three, and we did uh, the Vietnam, the uh, hair. We did hair. Hair, yeah, right? Yeah, three, three, three musicals. That was a lot of fun. Great talent. It but was it was great about that show. There was variety to it. You did that. There were other, as we talked about, other other episodes that covered other topics and so forth. It wasn't the same situation every time. Just kind of recycling and no. talk about the we, same old things. You know, so we did two shows in Russia. You know, right. we, we we went to Moscow. We went to the Kennedy Space Center. We went. What else did we? Yeah, we did a lot of stuff, man. A lot of fun. If you get a chance to sell reruns, get a chance to see. It. If you haven't seen it, it's it's wonderful. Uh, through the years. I have learned there's no harm in charging oneself up with delusions between moments of vapid inspiration from Steve Martin. Does that speak to you in any way? Have you ever heard that quote before? Could you say it again? Sure I can. Through the years, I have learned there is no harm in charging oneself up with delusions between moments of vapid inspiration. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to. Uh, I mean, there's two things that drive, I always say, drive people in Hollywood. One is money and the other is revenge. Um, because uh, you have so much rejection in your life. Uh, and Steve certainly did. He, you know, he, he, he bombed a lot. And uh, there were people who wouldn't hire him and so forth. So, so you, you want to get even and, and show how uh, uh, I can do that. I can do that. It's, Maybe it's, it's kind of benign. I mean, you're not, when I say revenge, you're not getting, you know, you're not hurting anybody, but uh, 
that's how Hollywood is 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 a town where uh, you know Schadenfreude, where people are are, are envious of your success. Uh, there's not a lot of people who actually. I mean, your your friends. You. I mean, there was. I knew a producer who used to uh, read the 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 Tuesday Variety um, the box office, and if he didn't have a picture. He would say, look at this, look at this piece of crap, $40 million, and look at this, this piece of junk, because he was just jealous because his picture wasn't up there, it wasn't included. So that was uh, um, that was his motive force. Well, That's also a- the, in the, the delusion in some ways to believe in yourself enough to keep on coming back to the drawing board after uh, you get... Yeah, you better, right? you better because you can't, you, you, you need that. You need that to sit down and write, you need that to get up and, and perform, and you need... You know, absolutely need that. Not too much, but you need a lot. You need it. <laughs> Sounds good. It's pretty much what yeah. we've got here in this room. Yeah. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for spending so much time with us here. Michael Elias, You Can Go Home Now is a, a book that, if you haven't read it yet, is a good one to get back to the uh, drawing board. It, it uh, It's going to be a, a series soon. Read the original. You're going to love it. Uh, Michael, you've spent uh, so much time with us. We've been so happy to, to, to do so, and, and thank you for... for for you know, spreading some uh, some stories and some smiles on our faces uh, through the years. Enjoyed it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, guys. Thank this you. Was fun, man. And I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad to do it. Really, and I'll do it again. Especially get Nick Meyer on with me. Or, I will. I think it's going to be it'll be a great show to have the two of you at once. We will definitely. You'll see. You'll see, you'll see competition. <laughs> exactly. We'll see the sparks fly. All right. Sounds good. If you happen to mention to him at a, at a cocktail party, uh, you help us along with that or something. Uh, that would be great, too. But long story short, I'll, I'll reach out to both of you soon. Okay. Take Thank care. Thank you very much. And come on back next week to enjoy more pop culture entertainment right here and everything old. So, again. You've been listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's pop culture entertainment talk show. Find us on the web at everythingoldisnewagain.biz. That's .biz. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station.